I was thinking about a conversation I had with a friend of mine 10, 11, 12 years ago, a long time ago. Uh, actually, it was 2009, so that makes it 11 years ago. Uh, my wife and I, we worked at Madison House. We worked with all these inner city kids and had a great time doing it. And my friend Nick comes down and, and we're doing a, a ministry with him and doing an outreach to some of the kids there. And he says to me, he says, hey, Kevin, our church, we planted two other churches. Kevin, where should we plant the next church? And I was like, boom, without any thought. I was like, you need to plant downtown. Boom, without a thought. I had all these reasons. I talked for 15 minutes without letting him even interject about all the reasons about why he should plant a church downtown. And the experience that my wife and I had, we got hired at Madison House, and we were young, we were underqualified, we were inexperienced, but we loved God and we loved people. And God did some tremendous things through that ministry at Madison House. And I think more importantly, what God did is he, he, he did something in the life of Samantha and I where he gave us maybe a different kind of view on ministry, uh, where we began to look at ministry and church uh, and began to have a passion for ministry, not where everybody looks the same, not where everybody uh, goes to the same schools and, and is in the same setting and has the same financial background, but God gave us a vision for what it looks like to do ministry with people different than you. And so we, we had this passion, and, and as we're serving with all these kids, it was amazing because we loved the church. We loved the church, and while we loved these kids, we had this desire to see, how do you see these kids come to love the church the way that we love the church? Madison House, we weren't the church. And I had this desire inside of me that I wanted these kids to experience the church the way that we knew that God had created it to be. In fact, I love thinking back on stories of my life. I love hearing stories. I love hearing stories from other people's lives. I love hearing things like that about, man, here's something that happened all these years ago. But what I've noticed is as I've grown in my faith, as I've, I've grown deeper in love with Jesus, uh, I began to have a greater understanding of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, meaning that, that God is behind, working behind the scenes. And so, and so even, it's not enough that we just learn these stories and hear these stories of one, another li- one, or, one another's lives. It's not enough just to know what happened, but we have to hear these stories and begin to think through them theologically. We have to begin to think through them theologically. That behind the stories of our lives, that we have all these experiences that may seem random, that may seem just so weird, but God is actually working behind the scenes oftentimes without our even knowledge. He's working things out for our good and for his glory. And sometimes it may take us years to see. It may take a long time. But we have to learn to begin to to pause in our life and to think back over the details of our life and not just think this is what happened, but think what was God trying to do here? What was God trying to say? We started a series a couple weeks ago on the book of Judges. Uh, Judges is the seventh, seventh book of your Bible. If you open up your Bible, you can turn there. Um, uh, we, we see that this story, this book of Judges, is the result of people who were doing things uh, what was right according to their own eyes. That they're looking at life and saying, man, this is a way it me- makes sense to us on how to live. And so you see them just doing whatever seems right to their own eyes. And while they're doing that, they are not surrendering to God. They're not obeying what he has for them. And and when we live that way, when we don't live in light of what God wants for us, man, what happens for them and happens for us is it leads to oppression. 
And so God's people get into oppression. And the book of Judges is about how God brings these leaders to come in and rescue his people out of that oppression. And it happens again and again and again. One of the things that we said as we looked at this book, it is graphic. It is alarming. It has at least a PG-13 rating to it. Uh, And it is a book that reminds us constantly of our need to surrender to God. Of our need not to live according to our own eyes in the way that makes sense in our life. But we are to submit ourselves to God and live according to his standards. So today, we're in Judges chapter 4 and 5. We're going to look at three characters. We're going to look at a gal by the name of Deborah. A guy by the name of Barak. I'll just call him Barak. And uh, a gal by the name of Jael. And we're going to look at both of these chapters, chapters 4 and 5, because they both tell this story. Chapter 4, as you saw, as Pat read, chapter 4 is more of the historical account. Here's the details. Here's what happened. A to B to C to D. And chapter four, chapter 5 is more of a poetic telling of the story. And it gives us a further understanding of what happened in the story. So what I want to do this morning, I want to walk through the story to make sure we understand it. Uh, then we will look at some truths that come out of these two chapters. So starts out in verse 1. It says, the people did evil in the sight of God after he had died. Again, this is the pattern that we see throughout uh, the book of Judges. Where as soon as the leader dies, God's people, they start doing some bad stuff. They do evil. They turn away from God. And this is what happens again. After Ehud died, uh, they did evil. And so verse 2 says, the Lord sold them into slaves. Sold them to Jabin, uh, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And so... Uh, the King Jabin, he's got his, his military commander, by the guy by the name of Sisera, who's going to be the main agent of oppression in Israel. He's really the bad guy. Jabin's the king, but he's got Sisera who does the dirty work. And it says that Sisera had 900 iron chariots. Now, when we read that, when we read about iron chariots, you've got to remember in a day, like those were the modern tanks of that day and age. Right? And so uh, they were known where if you had an army, the, the tanks would come and they just plow your army over. Just drive right over them. And that's why iron chariots were so good. And so, verse 3, it says that uh, Sisera, he oppressed Israel very cruelly for 20 years. And in fact, one of the things that you see in the book of Judges is you're going to see that the oppression continues to get worse and worse and worse. Where you had a, a oppression that happened in chapter 3 uh, with, with, with Ehud. And then it just continues to get worse. And so that's what happens here. And finally, after 20 years of oppression, the people of God, they cry out for help. In verse 4, we're introduced to Deborah. It says, Deborah is a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth. And she was a judge in Israel at that time. She would sit under this palm tree. She would sit under the palm of Deborah. And people would come to her and she would give them judgment. It's kind of like a courtroom. You can picture a courtroom where people would come in and she would say, this is right, this is wrong, this is truth. And so like we would come in and be like, did Epstein really kill kill himself? And she'd be like, yes or no, whatever that happens to be, right? And And so here's Deborah. She's kind of a leader in Israel. And verse 6 says she calls for Barak. She calls for Barak. And she says, the Lord God of Israel commands you. Barak, God has a word for you. And here's what it is. He says, take 10,000 men and I will give you Sisera, who's the bad guy. I will give him into your hands. 
And Barak has a simple response. He's like, what? God wants me to do this? And Barak says, all right, here's the deal, Deborah. I will go and I will do this if you come with me. He kind of has this little bit of, of a moment of wavering of his faith where he's kind of like, man, I don't know if I can do this. Deborah, if you go with me. Deborah, of course, she sighs. She says, all right, fine, I will go. But because of your response, the honor is not going to be yours. The Lord is going to deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And then you see in verse 11, verse 11, it says Heber the Canaanite. This is the guy who had some sort of issue wherever he came from. Uh, maybe he couldn't get along with his neighbors or whatever it happened to be. And so it says that he, he moved away. He separated from the Canaanites and he, he pitched a tent in Zanim near Kadesh. Now, this verse almost seems kind of random. Like, we're talking about Deborah and Barak. We're talking about some impending war that they're about to go on. And then all of a sudden, the author tells us about some guy who's going to pitch a tent someplace else. And it seems so random. But it'll make sense in a moment. And so here's the story. Deborah, uh, she says to to Barak, she says, I want you to go down to the base of Mount Tabor. I want you to go into this river basin. Because when you get there, verse 14, uh, she says, Today the Lord will give Sisera into your hands. She says, Don't you know that God has gone before you? So verse 15, that's what happened. It says the Lord routed Sisera, routed his chariots and his army by sword. And it says that Sisera, in this route, he got down and he fled on foot. And this is where I always pause and I read this because I'm like, if I understand iron chariots, iron chariots will win every time against a a man-to-man battle, right? Like, I can just run my chariot right through you. But for some reason, Sisera gets down off of his chariot. And this is where chapter 5 gives us a little bit more information. In verse 21, verse 21 of chapter 5, it tells us that the reason that Sisera had to flee on foot was because God caused this sudden rainstorm. Uh, God caused this sudden rainstorm and the river flooded. And those chariots that were all so good, remember, they're in the river basin. So guess what happened to those chariots? They got stuck in the mud. And so here you've got Sisera, who's got all this power, and God, through his means, causes a flood and gets these uh, chariots stuck in mud. And so the chariots become obsolete, and Sisera has to flee on foot. Verse 17, chapter 4, it says that while Sisera is running on foot, he runs to the tent of Jael, the wife of that Canaanite guy. Remember him? Remember that random, like, oh, I'm going to move and pitch my tent in the middle of nowhere? Well, Sisera is running, and he finds this tent. And it says, Jael, she met Sisera. She went out there, and she said, hey, come on in, friend. Come on in. Come take a rest. Don't be afraid. I'm here for you. And, and, and Sisera's like, man, I'm really thirsty, you know? And she's like, well, let me warm up some milk for you. And she takes a blanket and, and pulls a blanket over Sisera and says, sings a little lullaby and says, go ahead, Sisera, take a little nap. Verse 21, it says, Jael took a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he was fast asleep. And she drove the peg through the temple into the ground. And surprisingly, it says, he died. And don't you love that they put that in there? I can imagine, uh, actually, in the original language, I'm not sure it says this, but I think it does. In the original language, it says that she actually walked outside and was like, Nailed it. Yes. It's a smashing story, is it not? So 
what we want to do is that's the basic story. We want to see if there, is there any piercing truth that we can take out of this story. I, wanna, I want us to understand what's at stake here, all right? <laughs> There's some really good application out of this story. So here we go. Number one, here's the first thing we learned from the story. First thing we learned is that God gives the same spiritual gifts to women that he gives to men, right? I mean, this story, maybe more than any other story in the Bible, gives us a glimpse to how God views women in the kingdom of God. Deborah, she's described as being a prophetess. She's described as being a wise and respected leader in Israel. In fact, you see Deborah, she's different than all the other judges in the, bu- in the book of Judges. All the other judges, they rule by might. They rule by leading a, a, an army. And here's Deborah, she is not ruling by might. She's ruling by wisdom and character. She, she's counseling and guiding people. She's sitting under the tree solving issues for people. She is leading from wisdom and, and, and character. Now... One of the arguments when you get to the story, one of the arguments that sometimes people will say is, well, the only reason that Deborah was leading in this way is because there was no men around to step in and lead. And well, you could try and say that, but this text doesn't really say anything about that. In fact, what happens is when Deborah tells Barak, I want you to go, and remember Barak has a little bit of a wavering of faith. Man, we see even before that happened, Deborah is already leading. Deborah is already in that role. She's already uh, uh, an established leader teaching in Israel. And she's placed there not because no one else is around. She's placed there because of her gifting and because of her abilities. I think it's good for us to acknowledge Deborah and her role because there's this myth that has gone around in some different church settings. Uh, This myth is that men, men do all of the leading. Men do all the teaching. And women, their role in church is to serve a nursery And to pick out the curtains to make sure the curtains match the carpet. And make sure the pillows all look really good together. Um, In fact, fact, there was this, a couple weeks ago, there was this uh, popular uh, woman speaker uh, by the name of Beth Moore. Christian woman speaker. And there was a pastor in California. and, And the pastor was asked, what do you think of Beth Moore and her ministry? And his response was, she can go home. Her, her, Her ministry doesn't matter. She can go home. Now I'll tell you what. I've got a little red-headed girl. Uh, she's got some spunk in her. She's got some spunk. But let me say, nobody better tell her to go home. Nobody better tell her to go home. I, w- I don't want my daughter to grow up weak. I don't want her to grow up uh, superficial, thinking that she doesn't have a value that she brings to the body of Christ. In fact, I don't want our church to create an atmosphere that women feel like they are weak, that they are superficial, that they don't have a voice and a place in our church. Ladies, yes, we want you, we want to help you be better wives and be better uh, mothers, if that's the role that God has given you. But I also want us as a church to be passionate. That if God's called you to be a leader, man, we want to see that. We want to affirm that. We want to help you figure out the role that God has, has called you to. In fact, we affirm what the Bible teaches about men and women. In Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, God affirms the role of both men and women. It says that, that, that God created male and female, and God created both of them in the image of God. In fact, when you look at the structure and the order, God creates both male and female. And then he says, I give you dominion over the entire earth to both the man and the woman. 
So we affirm that God created men and women equal. There's not a superior sex. Men are not greater than women. But we also affirm that both the Old Testament and the New Testament they, they teaches that God created men and women with these complementary roles. That there are specific roles for men to serve in and women to serve in. In fact, you see this in this story in chapter 4. In chapter 4, remember when, when, when Deborah tells Barak, hey, God wants you to go and do this. And Barak's kind of like, I don't know if I can do this. He has this little bit momentary wavering of faith. Notice Deborah doesn't say, fine, because you won't do it, I'll do it. She doesn't say, I'll sign up, I'll go. She, she recognizes she's not a warrior to lead the army. And so she recruits someone that has abilities that complement hers. And says, Barak, let's go together. We need one another. In, in, in leadership of the Old Testament, again, this is where the Old Testament, there's three different leadership positions. There's prophet, priest, and king. Now we look at those terms Look, look at the roles that Deborah fills. Deborah is a prophetess. She fills the role of prophet. She's teaching. She's leading. We see her. She's, she's doing some ruling. She's doing some judging. And, and so we see her in that position where she kind of fills a leadership role, kind of like a king. She's giving direction to Israel. But what is the one role that Deborah does not fill? Priest. Because the Bible, the Old Testament is very clear. That priests, the role of priest was reserved for men who are, the, who are the descendants of Aaron. That there is one role that, that, that a woman cannot fill. They can lead, they can teach, they can be a ruler, they can be a king. But the one role they cannot fill is the, priest, is the role of priest. Because that is a role that God has set aside for women or for men. New Testament is a similar pattern. In the New Testament, women, you see them all throughout the New Testament leading in any number of spots in the church, using their spiritual gifts, including the gifts of leadership and teaching, except for one role, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 3. The one role that a woman cannot serve in is the role of elder or pastor. This is the only limitation that you find in the New Testament, that there is these one role in the Old Testament, the priest, one role in the New Testament, elder and pastor, and outside of that, a woman can do anything in the church. She can lead, she can teach, she can do all these things except for these two roles. So, ladies, what does this mean for you? Ladies, what is, how has God gifted you? And what is the calling that God has placed in your life? Ladies, you're not called to just sit on the sidelines and make coffee. I mean, God forbid that you are told to go home. To make you feel like your ministry doesn't have value. What is God calling you to do? Do you know what it is? Do you know the calling that God has placed in your life? Have you obeyed that call? Have you stepped up to say, man, this is where I feel like the Lord leading me. Have you stepped up to actually fill that role? Because I'll be honest. The church is better when you step up. Deborah? She's a leader of the highest quality. She was needed in Israel. And I'll be honest, the church, we need women like Deborah who understand the context that God has created, the church, and would use their gifts to fit into that context. Man, I, I, think, about, I think about some of the Debras in our church. 
I didn't ask for permission to share these, so I may get in trouble for them. But I, I, I think it's important to recognize that we have some amazing Debras in our church. I love watching my wife, Samantha. Uh, she's an incredible leader, and she's got the if gathering coming up this weekend, and she's kind of in charge of the if gathering. And every time she starts doing the if gathering, as I watch her lead, I grab a notebook and I start writing notes down because she is so organized. She is such naturally gifted as a leader. And I'm like, man, I wish I was as good as that. I listen to her when she has to speak. She hates public speaking. She hates having to stand up in front of people. But she does it so naturally. I'm like, you guys get the short end of the stick by listening to me and not her. It's just the truth. I love the way that God has gifted her. I love, I love how God has gifted Jaylene. Jaylene is not just a worship leader. You look at Jaylene, she's a teacher at heart. And so you look at our worship team, she is not just trying to lead worship, she's trying to, to teach and develop and pour into the other people on the worship team. I think about, I think about Kathy Floyd. Is there, is there anyone that you've met who oozes just the, 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 the spirit of God like her? The encouragement, you get around her and you're like, man, I feel like a million bucks because she uses that gift to encourage and point you back to God. Man, I tell you what, we need more Debras in the church. Women who respect the order that God has given us, who respect the structure, the complementary roles that he's created us, but women who stepped into their gifting, who step into their calling. In fact, I would encourage you ladies, man, I point you to the if gathering this coming weekend, Friday, Saturday, Friday night and Saturday morning. The original idea behind the if gathering was if god is real ladies this is what it means for you if god is real then what does that mean for you what does that mean for your life what does that mean for your faith what does that mean for your family what does that mean for your church what does that mean for our community man what a great opportunity ladies for you to go and say god god how have you gifted me what have you called me to do to go and be challenged through some great speaking, some great worship, some great fellowship, some other women, and just figure out, man, what is the calling that God has placed on me? Because I'll tell you what, ladies, we need you. The church needs you. We are stronger when you step into the role that God has called you to play. Second piercing truth we get from this story, uh, number two, is that God is blessed when we engage in his service. God is blessed when we step in and we jump in and engage in his service. Look at, look at chapter 5, verse 2. It says, when the leaders took lead in Israel, when the people, when they offered themselves willingly, Deborah says, the Lord is blessed. Verse 9, Deborah writes and says, my, my heart goes out to those who willingly offered themselves in service. And again, you see this, she says, bless the Lord. That when, when people willingly offer themselves, Man, God is blessed. God is blessed. And, and follow, follow along a couple of verses uh, as you look to see the different people that, that volunteered to jump in. Verse 14, it says, from the tribe of Ephraim, the people came. They, they jumped into the battle. They said, hey, there's something to do. I'm in. Verse 15, Issachar, the faithful of Issachar. They're like, hey, God, you've got some work to do. We're in. We're going to go to battle with you. Verse 18, the people of Zebulun, they risked their lives. So you have this, this group of people that hear, man, God's got some needs. God's got some, some work to do. And these people are like, hey, I'm in. Let's go to battle. You, you got something to do. I'm in. On the flip side, verse 17. 
It says, Gilead, they stayed back. The people of Dan, they hung out back by the ships and didn't go forward. Asher, he sat back at the beach. He didn't even leave. Further down, verse 23, Deborah writes and says, Curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to to the help of the Lord. See, what Deborah is saying, what Deborah is saying is that God is blessed when we engage in our faith. God is blessed when we are willing to fight for him. God is is blessed when we step into his plans, when we step into his purposes, that in addition, we are blessed when we step forward in faith and say, God, I'm here. And on the flip side, I think Deborah teaches us that we are cursed when we sit back and watch. So we already kind of spoke to the ladies. Ladies, what is your gifting? Ladies, what is your calling? Now it's time for the gentlemen. Gentlemen, how many of you are hanging back by the ships when you ought to be in the fight? In fact, I, I remember this quote from years ago. Uh, the, great temptation, the great temptation for men. The great temptation for men is not to do evil, but to do nothing. Right? In Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, uh, God gave Adam the responsibility to lead his wife, to serve, and to protect her. And do you remember what happens? Remember what happens when the snake comes to tempt Eve? Remember what happens? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says that she takes the fruit and she ate it. And she turned to her husband who was with her and gave it to him. And he ate as well. He's standing right beside her watching this whole thing going on. Again, the greatest temptation for us men is not that we'd be evil, but that we would sit back and do nothing. There's a lot of guys who are not bad guys, but they're just hanging back by the ships when they ought to be up in the fight. They ought to be engaged in what God is doing. Deborah is telling us that when the princess, when the men, when they lead, when they jump in service to the Lord, she said, man, the Lord is praised. The Lord is blessed. Man, God has given you a crucial role that cannot be replicated by anybody else. Men, you have a crucial role that cannot be replicated by anyone else. And if your family, and if our church, if we're going to praise the Lord, men, it's because you step forward and say, all right, God, I'm in. All right, God, I will engage. In fact, I think I shared this a couple of years ago. I think this is remarkable. That if you look at a family, if a child is the first person in the family to place their faith in Jesus... Okay, so you've got a little family. Uh, the child is the first one to become a Christian. There's a 3.5% chance that the rest of the family will follow suit. Okay? Now, if mom, if mom is the first person to place her faith in Jesus, she becomes a Christian, starts coming to church, there's a 17% chance that the rest of the family will follow. Gentlemen, if you and I are the first ones to place our faith in Jesus there's a 93% chance that the family will follow. Do you see how much of an impact us men make? Man, what does it look like for you to be in the battle? What does it look like for you to be engaged with what God has called you to do and not just stand back by the ships, twiddling your thumbs, watching what everybody else is doing? It means that, men, we are the first to repent. When's the last time you repented? When's the last time you said, hey, you know what? 
Wife, I need to sit down. I need to apologize for what I've done. Kids, I was wrong. I need to repent. I need to seek forgiveness for this. Men, when's the last time you repented? Men, how significant is, is coming to church to you? That church is one of the most tangible expressions of our faith. And for us men, how many times is it, well, there's a game on right now. There's other things I've got to do. You know what I've found with kids? Is what you do is much more important than what you say. That you can say everything you want. You can say, I love God till I'm red in the face. But if your actions don't back it up, kids read through that. Like nothing else. What is the example, men, that you are setting for your family? Are you serving? Are you loving? Are you sacrificing? Men, if we're going to see what God wants us to be, men, Deborah's need to step in. The ladies need to step in. But men, you and I need a Deborah up. We need a man up. We did a man up and get in the game and say, God, I'm in. What's it take? What's it going to take? The third thing at stake in this text, third thing we learn is that there's going to be one day when God is going to right every wrong. That there's coming a day when God is going to right every wrong. In fact, towards the end of chapter five, you see Deborah, she's writing chapter five. She kind of mocks this guy Sisera. She says in verse 28, she sarcastically, she kind of puts words in Sisera's mom's mouth. Like, hey, if, if your mom was here, she'd be wondering, what's taking Sisera so long? Like he went out to battle. How come he's not back yet? And there's some other ladies around. She says, well, they'd be like, well, they're dividing up the spoil. But look at verse 30. Verse 30 says that there is a womb or two for each woman. Which means that the idea for Sisera and for Jabin and for those in that time is that they would take sex slaves from the people they conquered. That Sisera and other leaders were known for taking sex slaves from the people they conquered. In fact, when we hear that, it begins to help us understand, well, what is the cruel suffering that Israel was dealing with? Well, probably this idea that is... Sisera is, is leading uh, the armies and, and doing a terrible job that they're taking Israelites for their own personal benefit, using them and spitting them out. And so you have this Deborah writing this and Deborah saying, hey, this is what Sisera's mom's saying. Where's my son? What's taking him so long? And at the same point, Sisera is in a tent being killed by a woman. Do you kind of see just this perfect poetic justice? Do you kind of see what's happening here? That Sisera has spent his life oppressing and abusing women. And at the end, he is brought down by a woman with a tent peg. Do you see the poetic justice here? I'll be honest. Every evil doesn't end like Sisera, right? I mean, every story doesn't have a happy ending. There are times that the bad people seem to get away with the worst of things. It's the truth. And sometimes we might even feel like, man, why is it? It doesn't seem so fair. Why do the guilty go unpunished? I mean, it feels fitting for Sisera to die this way. But we look at our life and we're like, man, it 
it just seems so wrong. The people that have done these things to me, they just go unpunished. What is right about this? This story is a glimpse of how God someday is going to settle all of the scores. That this story, like every other story in the book of Judges, Deborah is a, is a picture pointing us to Jesus. That like Jael and like Deborah, Jesus is the unexpected Savior whom everyone thought was weak. And he is going to destroy the enemy in a very surprising way, just as Jael did. And so here we see Jael and Deborah, they're pointing us to Jesus. Because in Jesus, there's going to be a time when the, all the oppression is going to end. In Jesus, there's going to come a time when justice is restored. That the wrongs and the hurts and their sufferings that we've experienced, man, Jesus gives us ama- amazing promises. In fact, he promises in the book of Revelation. He says, in eternity, which is actually not all that far away from us. He says, in eternity, God is going to make all things right. Isn't that a great promise? Knowing that there's coming a day when God is going to make all things right. That in in eternity, that we have this promise that there's no more pain. There's no more sadness. There's no more sorrow. There's no more struggle. That he will wipe away every tear from our eye. That he will restore the earth. That he will make wrong what has gone right. Man, that's a great thing to look forward to. In addition, there's another promise of God righting every wrong. In Romans, excuse me, the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 tells us that vengeance belongs to God. That the people that have wronged us, the people that have hurt you, the people that have violated you, listen, you don't have to get them back. Because God says in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. I begin to think about like what kind of vengeance I pay versus the kind of vengeance God's going to pay. Kind of not even close to being what God can do. And God just says, vengeance is mine. I will repay that every sin that has been ever committed against you, every sin that's ever been committed against the people that you love, Jesus will pay that back. I'd either be paid in hell or to be paid on the cross. But there is a hope for us that every injustice we experience, that God is going to right every wrong. He's going to make it right. He's going to make it right. The last piercing truth out of this text is I want to come back to the idea that we had in the very beginning. That we need to learn to interpret life. We need to learn to interpret our story theologically. That it's not just, here's my story, here's what happened to me. But we begin to interpret our story in light of what God was trying to do in us and through us. In fact, when you look at this text, again, chapter 4. Chapter 4 is kind of this historical account. This happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And chapter 5, well, actually, I'll I'll say chapter 4. When you read chapter 4, only four times is God mentioned in the entire chapter. And three times are when Deborah is speaking. So chapter 4 is literally just this historical account. Chapter 5, God is everywhere. Chapter 5, God is everywhere. The whole chapter 5 is all about God. 
And so like Deborah, what we need to do is we need to take a chapter 5 perspective on our lives. That we begin to interpret all of our life, all of the circumstances, all the good things, all the bad things, all the things that we would say, well, that's so by chance. That so happens and such a coincidence that we begin to reinterpret the story of our lives and see God's hand behind everything. See God's hand leading us for our good and for his glory. Because when we understand the sovereignty of God, there's not a day that goes by that God doesn't have his hand behind. It doesn't mean that we always understand it in the middle. There's so many times we're going through life, I don't get this. Why are you doing this? What is happening here? And it might take us a little while to recognize what God is trying to do. In fact, there's a story in the Old Testament, a guy by the name of Joseph. Joseph is a, is a righteous man, a godly man, and his brothers get jealous of him. And so his brothers decide, hey, let's sell him off into slavery. I mean, he'll be good as dead, right? We'll never have to deal with him again. And so the brothers, they sell him off to slavery, and Joseph is a, is a slave, and he's like, man, this isn't fair. What's up with this? And while he's a slave, he does his very best. He serves God faithfully in that and gets wrongly accused of a sexual assault. And gets sent from being a slave into prison. Again, let's just put ourselves in that story. We're kind of like, God, this isn't fair. God, this really isn't right. All these people have done all this wrong to me. I haven't done anything wrong. God, this isn't fair. But God was with him. God is sovereign. And he had a plan for Joseph's good and for God's glory. And so after two years in prison... Joseph has the opportunity to interpret a dream for the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh's like, you're a genius. And the Pharaoh says, I want you to become my, my, my number two in all of Egypt. I want you to become the second in command. You're going to be given incredible power, incredible wealth, incredible influence. And so here's the story of Joseph where he sold into slavery injustice. He sent to prison injustice, but God had a purpose and rose him up all the way to second highest in command next to Pharaoh. Years later, there's a famine in the region. There's no food. But because God was with Joseph, Joseph had all this food. So what happens is his, his brothers, uh, they, they, they hear, they're all without food. And they, they hear about this guy who's the vice president in Egypt. And they're like, well, yeah, we hear he's got some food. And so they go and, and, and find this guy who's vice president in Egypt. And Joseph reveals himself and says, hey, I'm your brother that you sold into slavery. And that's where we see Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. That, that, that Joseph says, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good so that you'd be kept alive. In fact, as I think back about my life, I think back about that conversation I had with Nick Natale years ago. We had that conversation in 2009, three years later. Nick calls me up and says, hey, let's get coffee. And I'm like, all right. It's like, Kevin, we want to plant a church. I'm like, yes, that's good. Kevin, we want to plant a church downtown. Yes, that's awesome. Kevin, would you do it? No. No, no. Uh, no, that's not, that's not my job. I've got a five-year plan. I've got different things orchestrated. I've got a different vision for myself. And I went home and I talked to my wife. And I'm like, hey, I met with Nick today. And this is what Nick said to me. And she starts tearing up. And she's like, well, what, 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 what'd you say? I said, well, no, because that's not my plan. She said, but Kevin, do you see what God has done in our lives? Do you see how God has given us a vision for the church? 
Do you see how God has given us a passion for a church that looks a little bit different? Do you think that perhaps God was orchestrating the details of our lives so that we would step in and, and plant this church? Who else is going to do it? And here's Restoration Church, almost seven years old. And we look back. We look back and see God's hand orchestrating these things in our lives, leading us to this point. So that's, and that's what I ask you to do today, is begin to think back on your life. Begin to interpret the circumstances of your life in light of God. Think about the trials you've been through. Think about the people that God has placed around you. Think about the doors that God has opened up. Think about why God placed you here in Yakima. What was God saying to you? What is God doing through those things? In fact, I'd ask you this. Why are you at church today? Do you think it's just by happenstance? What is God speaking to you today? Is he calling you to repent? Some sin going on that needs to be repented of? Is he calling you to finally recognize his hand in your life? To recognize that he's been doing things and speaking and chasing and drawing you to this point so that you could place your faith in him and say, God, I'm in. I'm not going to stand by the ships any longer. I'm stepping in to what you've called me to do. God brought you here today so that you would humble yourself and surrender and say, all right, God, I'm in. I'm ready. We can and we should think of our lives as not just a series of, of occurrences that happen by chance. But we need to think through our life theologically. Search and figure out what God is saying, what God is doing. That I can say, for me, that God is working all things out for my good and for his glory. And I sometimes struggle understanding it. But when I begin to think through that God has a purpose behind it, I'll tell you what happens. Is when I understand that God is working things out in my life, it keeps me from overemphasizing my successes. I can't take the praise for that because God's hand was behind it. When I start going through a, a struggle and difficult time, Man, I don't have to despair that because I recognize God has a purpose. God is still working things out in my life. And ultimately, just like Deborah, that when we interpret our life in light of what God is trying to do, chapter 5 is, is all about praise. Chapter 5 is Deborah writing a song to praise God for who he is. And I think that, that God's presence in our life, that's what it should lead us to should lead us to, to worship, to lead us to, to praise, to celebrate what God has done and what God is doing and celebrating the fact that we might not even understand it, but God has a purpose. God is orchestrating things for our good and for his glory. And that we celebrate our story. When we celebrate our story, we're not so much telling the story of ourselves. But when we tell our story, we're really telling the story of what God is doing. That our story isn't our own. Our story is what God is doing through me. Your story is what God is doing through you.
God is building you a family. God has called you to this city. God is wanting to make an impact through you.